thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin this week's show. The episode you're about to hear first aired on December 2nd, 2019, as part of that year's Bomber Month. And we just learned today, October 2nd, 2021, that our guest on this episode, Mr. Crawford Hicks, has passed away at the tender age of 100. Naturally, our condolences go out to the Hicks family and all those who knew and loved him. And in a moment, you'll hear our usual enthusiastic tone on the show, but we are, of course, saddened by his loss. Rest in peace, sir. Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. Every Monday from December 2nd to the 23rd, we'll feature a different American bomber. From the venerable World War II era Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress to the cutting edge Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to the bombers with your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot Vincent Aiello. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is at the Museum of Aviation at Robbins Air Force Base in Warner Robbins, Georgia, and I am joined by Mr. Mike Rowland. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You're going to help us talk about the B-17 Flying Fortress, and we just happen to be sitting next to one. It is an exciting airplane to see up close, Mm -hmm. the way we have here. Well, we're very fortunate to have the airplane. Cool. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then I understand you have someone else we should talk to, but first, let's get to know you very quickly. Uh, where are you from, and what have you done, and what are you doing? So, you may enjoy this part. I am a Navy brat. Oh, all right. My dad served in the Navy a uh, career. I started out in diesel submarines as an electrician's mate. Okay. Eventually went to school, got a degree, came back as an officer. Right. Uh, served in submarines, then he went into uh, the logistics, uh, the supply corps, mm-hmm. logistics side. I went into the Air Force. I served on active duty for six years. Enjoyed it, learned a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, felt like maybe there was something else I wanted to do. So I got into museum work, went to the University of Florida where I got a degree in museum studies. Mm. Came to the Museum of Aviation as an intern. Okay. Uh, went back to the University of Florida thinking I'd never see the place. Uh, was hired. <laughs> on around the time I graduated, and I've been here for 15 years. And you are currently the curator of this museum. Yes. Wow. And this is an impressive facility. What can you tell us about the Museum of Aviation here? The Museum of Aviation is the second largest museum in the United States Air Force, and it opened in 1984. So this is our 35th anniversary year. Excellent. We're very excited about that. Yeah. We have four exhibit buildings and about 90 airplanes, well over half are inside. Okay. And uh, really kind of focused on World War II to the present. Uh, so it's just a neat place, uh, free to the public. We hope that people will come and visit. Well, if they are in central Georgia, they absolutely should, because just getting 
in the door to meet you today, I saw a B1, an F15, a B52, an A10, a C130, a C, what was that, 124, I think you've got outside? A 124, yes. And then I walk into this amazing hangar, and the first thing I see is a B29. You've got another hangar with fighters. And right now, we're sitting next to the subject of today's episode, and that's a B-17. And what can you tell us about this particular aircraft? Well, the B-17 is one of those just really famous and iconic airplanes. Absolutely. So people, when they think of a World War II strategic bomber, they almost certainly think of the B-17, probably even more than the B-29. And I think that's because the B-17 has been in so many movies. Right. It just kind of stays there in the conscience. I think, too, that one of the great things about the B-17 is this really dramatic human story that began with, you know, in the factory. The airplane was mass-produced, but it was put together by hand. Mm-hmm. You had Rosie the Riveter, but you had thousands of other people working together on it. And so people had their hands all over this airplane wow. in the factory. Uh-huh. It gets out to the field. The mechanics have their hands all over this airplane. And then a typical 10-man crew is flying it in combat. And you have literally humanity from one end of the airplane to the other. So it's so much more than just the metal and the rubber and all the different parts that make up an inanimate object like an airplane. It's the fingerprints, if you will, the stories. And this particular one is undergoing a renovation. And for the listeners, if you hear children's voices, that's because we're inside the museum and they are walking by enjoying all the different displays. And there are people inside this particular aircraft. What can you tell us about this one? So this one was built very late in World War II and was not flown in combat. Okay. It uh, really it went into storage very soon after it was produced, waited around. Eventually, though, this particular airplane was modified as a drone control airplane and was used to control other B-17s that were used on test missions, most famously for this particular airplane at the museum for uh, some of the atomic bomb testing out in the Pacific. So this airplane was controlling other B-17s that were flown into the uh, cloud Mm -hmm. after an atomic test. So even way back then, drone control was, I mean, we all think of it as sort of modern technology, but they were doing it 60 years ago. Okay. All right. So this being the Fighter Pilot Podcast and the aircraft series, Mike, we're talking about the B-17. We know that this was a strategic bomber, basically, for World War II, and did it quite well. And there was a handful of variants, right? So we had some early kind of, what, not pre-production, but some prototype variants. What can you tell us about the ones that were operational? I think, what, beginning with the E model? That sounds right. Okay. So the E, F, (laughs) and G, right? Right. So the very earliest models had some machine guns and that's where it picked up the name flying fortress because it looks like a fortress but what we're used to is like the g model that we have here Mm -hmm. with you know guns sticking out of the nose the top and lower turrets the tail the waist gun positions but the early b-17s didn't have as many guns oh wow and so combat experience showed that they had to add more weaponry okay so that's you know it became more of a flying fortress uh over the course of time The G model that we have at the museum was the most produced version, kind of the definitive model of the B-17. A good balance of range and payload capacity and so on. A good Mm -hmm. flying airplane as far as that goes. Sure. And do you recall as far as ordnance goes, I mean, so it's 50 caliber guns. I want to say, did they end up with about 13 different guns? 
maybe it's less because I know the crew is about 10, but at any rate, bristling with guns, I think we can safely say. What about ordnance otherwise on the aircraft? I mean, it's a bomber, so just regular type bombs or? Typically, you know, B-17s flew in combat in the Pacific in the early part of the war, but they just didn't have the range Mm -hmm. over the long distances. So the B-17 in the Pacific was quickly replaced by the B-24 Liberator. In Europe, though, uh, generally the B-17 was flying with uh, just a general purpose bomb, a 500-pounder, a 1,000-pounder. Sometimes they'd carry a little bit more. It would a heavier bomb, Mm -hmm. depending on the target, if they were going to hit, you know, U-boat pens, for instance. Right. But generally it's going to be a 500 Mm -hmm. to a 1,000-pound general purpose bomb. And up to, I believe, if I read correctly, about 4,000 pounds capacity? About 4,000 pounds. Which is interesting because it's actually arguably not that much, but this is also a 70, 80-year-old design, right? So That's one of the things that really strikes me about an airplane like this. It is big. You mm-hmm. walk around it. It's really impressive, but it's got a really small bomb bay for such a big airplane. Right. A really, actually, a pretty small bomb load for such a big airplane. Okay. And, of course, it is made famous by, as you said, several places, but most notably probably is the movie Memphis Bell. It was showcased in that. And that aircraft still exists, right? That airplane is a magnificent icon for the United States, and it is on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base outside of Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Uh, it's, it's on display. It is really impressive. Highly recommend a visit there. Well, it's been several years. I went there last as a Top Gun instructor, so it's been almost 20 years. Gosh. and You you uh, need need to to go back. I need to go back. And same thing for the Naval Museum in Pensacola because it's changed a lot as well. But these museums, and especially this one, Mike, are just amazing because it's a way to preserve and promote the history uh, for the next generation, right? Right. And, you know, people can say, well, you know, I can just take in a B-17 virtually on my computer or um, I can look at pictures or watch a movie, but there's nothing quite like being able to come up and see for yourself Mm -hmm. its size, its scale, and you can start imagining, you know, the people and their experiences with it. Right. And something like over 12,000 were made, but there's not that many left. There really aren't. You know, I don't know what the numbers are, but many were destroyed in combat or training or whatever, and then uh, were quickly brought out of frontline service because Mm -hmm. there were better airplanes by the end of the war or the post-war years right you know they some of them hung around for a long time just as as almost kind of i don't know hack airplanes our b-17 was one of the last in service and it was retired to bunker hill air force base in uh north central indiana okay it went on display there in 1961 and was outside for 54 years before wow. we were able to recover it and bring it here for restoration. Wow. And it's not like we're tucked away in a part of the hangar where no one can see. I mean, this renovation, refurbishment, whatever we should call it, is happening right in front of your patron's eyes, right? Right. It's really fun. Part of it is the size of the airplane. We, we had to get it into a place mm-hmm. where we could work on it. But yes, visitors can come up and they can see the work that's going on. Very cool. And I understand there is a local here in this area who flew these in the war. Is that right? Yes. Crawford Hicks is a delightful fellow, and I'm glad you get to meet him and talk with him. He flew B-17s, and he'll tell you some great stories. Excellent. Well, why don't we go track him down? I appreciate you giving us an overview of the aircraft, and we'll see what Mr. Hicks has to say about his time flying this in World War II. Very good. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mike.
Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is at the Museum of Aviation at Robbins Air Force Base in central Georgia. And we are joined by a young man by the name of Mr. Crawford Hicks. How are you today, sir? Fun. Thank you, sir. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time to allow us to meet. And we will talk about you and one of the aircraft here in this museum that you flew, and that is the B-17 Flying Fortress. But can you tell us a little bit about you first? So let's just prime the pump. You said earlier you were born in 1921. Correct. And are you from Kentucky? From outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And then you served in the U.S. Army Air Corps, and then it turned into the Air Force for over 20 years and retired as a lieutenant colonel. And I was one of the the Brown Shoe Army. Okay. And now here you are in central uh, Georgia. But tell us a little bit about your youth as far as what interested you in flying and then what you did in your military career. Okay. Born in 1921, when I was about five or six, seven years old, there was a lot of news about the German and the English and the American fighter pilots in World War One, And, of course, I was interested in that, and I used to build model airplanes. And so, anyway, I was able to—I was started reading when I was about six years old, and I read the newspaper, everything they said to say. So I built model airplanes and wanted to fly all my life. But I was raised on the farm, and I loved to read, which I did. And I was the youngest of four. My mother and brother were the farmers. I hated farm work and went to school. Um, and I, I loved to read, so that helped me tremendously. Okay. And my father had been a school teacher, and he was always on my case about using correct grammar. Uh, Lindbergh was my idol. Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh, okay. and I remember, I think, I think it was 1926. I'm not sure about that. But it's something like that when he flew across the ocean. Okay. And I, I listen, I, I read his story three or four or five times, and I read everything about him and how, how wonderful and I could just imagine myself. And also they had uh, mail carriers, and they, they were first starting with air mail delivery at mm-hmm. that point in time. And I remember reading about the mail carriers, how they'd be in the soup and they couldn't know where they're going and things, things of this sort. So sure. it was very, this is very fascinating to me. School was fun to me. All right. So anyway, went to high school and did, I did pretty well in high school because I didn't, I was comfortable mm-hmm. with what I was learning to do. Okay. And uh, graduated in 1939 and outside of uh, Louisville. I went to, started to college, University of Louisville, at that fall. I didn't have anything, but I played football in high school, not very well, but I played. (laughs) And so they gave me a $10 scholarship to play football and play football. (laughs) Well, I never played in a single game, and and I didn't study, didn't know how to study, didn't want to study. I flunked out after my first semester. I I didn't go back. Okay. They didn't kick me out. I just didn't go back. Anyway, so I um, didn't have any money, and I wanted money, so finally I got a job in a bank, and a very low-paying job. I think I got $50 a month for six days a week. Wow. But I was able to drive my Model A forward, 
And then the war came along. Right. And, I, of course, one, I knew I was going to have to go. Sure, you were I was 20 years old mm-hmm. and had to go. So I, I quit my job immediately and went to home. I was out in Oklahoma. And my mother would not sign my papers to fly because it was too dangerous. So I waited until I was 21, which was in February, and I went down to the people and signed up to fly. I was accepted as a aviation cadet. Okay. Or no, I was accepted. Of course, I applied for aviation. July of 42, I was I started active duty. Mm-hmm. Now, this was an interesting thing in itself. Something like 60 of us went to active duty and then did what they had to do and get our shots and get our uniforms and get oriented into the military life. And then we went to, took uh, examinations for flying. Okay. And I think there were 60 of us took the exam this first time. And please, I want you to know that they keep this in context because not I'm so smart, but because people were not so smart, maybe. 60 of us took the exam and only nine of us passed the first aptitude exam. Only nine of us. Hmm. That's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And then we went to and had a, um, a physical exam, and only six of us passed that. Mm-hmm. So they really washed a lot of people out there. Mm-hmm. But I did pass the six. I didn't. I was just thrilled to go. Sure. I was engaged at the time, and my sister and my fiance took me to the airport to go to active duty, they were crying. Of course. I couldn't understand why. <laughs> I was just jumping up and down ready to go <laughs> because I wanted to fly an airplane. Anyway, so I got, went to, to um, not basic training, but the preliminary down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. And went to cadets there. They had two months of West Point-type training. All right. We had to... As, as uh, lower as their first month, we were the plebes, and we had to stand at attention anytime we talked to somebody, and and we'd walk along the side of the ed, the side of the walk. We couldn't walk in the middle of the walk, and our barracks were inspected every day. Our beds are, we had to have our beds tightened mm-hmm. and everything like that. I loved every bit of it. Mm-hmm. Calisthenics, and I hated it, but it made me well. I did well. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I got through that already. And then started flying school down in Albany, Georgia. The washout rate had decreased after going through the basic training, mm-hmm. into the pre-basic training. Mm-hmm. So went to Dar Aerotech, learned to fly in a steerman, had, I think it was 30 hours. Okay. So a biplane tail dragger. And tail dragger. Mm-hmm. The first, uh, you know, in order to re- of solo, you had to do some landings under supervision. So we had to do three landings on three days to see that we could land by ourselves. The third landing of the first day, I ground looped with a little bit of grass stain on the wingtip. Didn't hurt it, but it's a little bit. I was able to recover. (laughs) (laughs) And on the third day, I did the same thing with the other wingtip, but they let me pass anyway. So I went through there, then went to, um, let's see, that was down at Dar, down in, in Albany, Georgia. And went to Greenville, Mississippi to fly the BT-13. It had twice the horsepower that the steerman had. And we could do a lot of things. We could do snap rolls and mm. all the and other things of that sort and spins and, and enjoy them. And we did. Did a lot of cross-country and a lot of radio work. And then they, they divided us. 
who wants to go to single engine, who wants to go to multi-engine. I wanted to go to multi-engine. So I did, went to uh, Vincennes, Indiana, flew the AT-10, and I think two engines together equaled the BT-13's one engine. This, this kind of power it had, hmm. not much. It got through there all right, was happy, and, and I loved it. And then I got my wings and got my commission. What year was this now? 1943. Oh. I was in class 43D. So I went, got from there and went home, had a 30-day vacation on leave, then went to Columbus, Ohio, and started to learn how to fly B-17. Okay. remember walking out on the, on the tarmac one day and I saw it, and I thought, I'll never be able to fly that thing. A hundred and three foot wingspan, and here I'd been used to a steerman, and so you can imagine what the transition was. Had a wonderful teacher, and he uh, put me in the left seat, which I was going to fly, and maybe fly left-handed, which I had to learn to do. Left-handed, okay. He, he would not let me use, use the trim tabs to do anything in landing or anything because mm-hmm. I had to horse it around with my hand. I had calluses on my left hand from from doing it, but I loved it. Uh-huh. So I learned how to fly the 17 and thoroughly enjoyed it. Then went from there to uh, Pyote, Texas. This is what I'm trying to remember, Pyote, Texas. Okay, Pyote. It's about 200 miles due east of El Paso, right smack in the middle of the desert. Mm. And they called it the Rattlesnake Bomber Base because they had to use bulldozers to clean off the rattlesnakes before they could build a base on there. Oh, That's how bad it was. Out in a desolate um, yeah. <laughs> area. Right. And uh, you take one night, remember, this is an aside a little bit, but one night I remember taking off and it was dark, no, there was no, no uh, sun, no cloud, no sun, anyway, no, no air, no um, moon. No moon. Took off and I went on instruments immediately because I could see nothing but stars and stars. And what it was, I was seeing all the oil flares in the ground, uh-huh. which looked like stars, and you couldn't differentiate oh, gosh. the stars from the oil ground. So, you, you, so I had to go on instruments immediately when I took <laughs> off. <laughs> all right. But we did that. Um, learned to fly a lot of formation. I flew a lot of B-17 formation. And I loved it and because, you know, it would do anything you wanted it to do. It's very easy and good to fly. Right. Very well, good. that's what we're going to talk about here okay. in a second. Okay. So, very, right. It was very good and stable, and, uh, well, it just responded to what you told it to do. Okay. And then went to, uh, still in Texas, up in the topper part of the panhandle as my second phase, and there I picked up my crew, co-pilot, Bombardier and navigator, and then we had six enlisted men. But these guys uh, were with us all the whole rest of the time. Okay. I had been graduated from flying school about about six months at that point in time, maybe seven. But I was designated first pilot, and my co-pilot had, I think, three months, two months he had been graduated. So he was quite new. I had to teach him whatever I knew. So anyway, uh-huh. we, had a, we had a good combination. Learned formation flying, did a lot of that. Learned bombing. Mm-hmm. We, we did practice bombing a whole lot. They would establish three spots on the ground, uh, and they put a little building in the, in the middle of them or a little signature was placed for them. They was lights and so forth. 
and formed a triangle. So we would take off at nighttime, and we always wore oxygen all the time, took off at nighttime and flew a triangular plan and dropped bombs on those three points. Hmm. And they were 20,000 feet. So that was pretty good. And Bombardier turned out to be a whale of a good one because there was a circle of about 50 feet around each one of these uh, markers down on the ground. Uh-huh. And if you got within that circle, you got to, you were doing, doing darn well. But he hit the shack in the middle of the circle and he dropped bombs. Very good. <laughs> so okay. that was good. Now, let me interrupt. What were you dropping? Were they live bombs or just oh, no, cement? No. no, no, cement. Yeah, yeah. practice or bombs. Maybe, maybe they had an explosive to show where they hit. Smoke know, charge. Something, yeah, okay. something like that. And they were like, when they were 200 pounds? No, no, it wouldn't be that much, would it? I don't know how much they be. weighed. I don't know. Right? It was just light enough to be a bomb. Right, and the right ballistics. Yeah, that's and right. so yeah. you could practice the right Techniques yeah. for what you would use coming up here. In and he, and we, Bombardier was a crackerjack. He yeah. really could do it. And right. so we got along well as a team. <laughs> Finished there and went to uh, Kearney, Nebraska. All right. Uh, this was in early 1943. We got there and they said, Hicks, here it is, sign down for this brand new B-17. So I had to sign for one. It had six hours on there wow. for something like that. Like a new car. Yeah, it was. It was. You could smell new. Mm. <laughs> so we uh, we got in it, and so we had to go up and see what it's like, you know. And I remember we our, altitude, our top altitude was about 30,000 feet. Okay. But I wanted to see much higher, how much higher it'd go. Uh-oh. So I got up to be about 33 to 4, 34,000 feet and started getting a little bit mushy. Mm. Then I came back down again. And you said earlier you would wear supplemental oxygen, the whole crew would? Oh, yeah, the whole crew, yes. Because so, it was obviously open windows for the gunners. And, 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 the, so. and the oxygen system. I don't even think they had an oxygen system other from with through the mask. Okay. I don't believe they did. And so you'd put that on, what, at 10,000 feet? Uh, it all, yes, it, it no, no later than that. Okay. And when you did night missions, we put it on the ground. Oh. So because you didn't want you fumbling around in, in, oh, the, that makes sense. in the dark. In the right. dark. Okay. Uh, in doing the bombing, we you fly in a, around the triangle, you know, drop bombs uh-huh. on each of the, those markers on the ground. And I was on the way home, and I was sitting back and enjoying. We did finished our job, and so let's go home now. And I saw a couple of lights up ahead of me. So all of a sudden, then my crew chief hit me on the, and hit me on the shoulder, look up there, and I saw it more clearly. And I kicked a hard rudder and pushed the nose down, and two fighters split. Dismissing me. They were, oh gosh! Yeah, yeah. Uh, you weren't talking to them, obviously, or anyone was controlling you. It was just seeing a void. Yeah, just seeing. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's right. Now, the things I'm talking about are, are dangerous. Mm. But you know what? I didn't feel it. I didn't feel a danger. I felt such a great deal of had some confidence in, mm-hmm. the, in the airplane. And, and, of course, they trained me well. Now, that was a big thing about it. I know is looking back on it. Mm-hmm. They trained me over and over. And, well, all of us, they trained sure. us all well. So these things were not hair-raising. <laughs> they happened, but... You were, like so many young men, impervious. You know, it would it's happen exactly to someone right. else, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Because, hey, we got through that all right. What like, What's going on next? <laughs> I used to think we were a lot of formation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I would try to get my wingtip at least 
even with the my lead airplane wing, mm-hmm. or maybe inside a little bit, because I just like to get fly close and sure. enjoy. Sure, you know the whole thing, and I enjoyed flying formation just tremendously. So the airplane that was assigned to you that had six hours, what model of a B seventeen was that? Because I understand you had the what A through D were the early ones, and then you had the E, F, and G. I think it was a D or an E. I forget. I, mean, I think more to think of it an E. Because right. this, when I finally went overseas, it was in the end of March of 1943. Yeah, I think that's when it was March of 1943. I flew to Labrador, left to Maine, mm-hmm. landed, topped gassed off. up, yeah. Yep. Then flew up to Goose Bay, Labrador. Okay. And I had I was smoking cigarettes, and there's also, I had a lot of sinus problems. And it went in at 30,000 because it was, it was so socked in all the way down and got to Goose Bay and it couldn't even land because of the hard, bad weather. Oh, gosh. So then I had to come back to the States. My nose wouldn't clear up during the whole time and my when I landed so that my air pressure, which was less in my head than it was on the outside, was pushing all this bad stuff up to my septum and in the, my head. Yuck. And my head felt like no knives going into it when it landed anyway. Right. And the co-pilot helped me land on that one. We landed at Goose Bay. The snow on either side of the runway was higher than the tail of the 17 <laughs> at 17 feet, you know. It didn't make we made the smoothest landing we ever made. You can mm. you couldn't even feel it. Wow. It was that good. <laughs> so the B-17s that left the United States and went to the European theater were all flown over. They weren't put on ships? And... I have to say that's true, okay. yes. There were several of those in, the, in this gaggle, if you will, sure. at that Making point. Your several way over. Of all right. So I would think, yes, we. Uh-huh. There, there were no airplanes carried over. They flew right. over. Okay. Can we talk just briefly about the B-17 as far as flying it goes? Was it a joy to fly or was it difficult how did you find the actual stick and rudder of landings? And, you know, obviously when you were employing weapons later, as we'll get to in your story, you're mostly straight and level. But what about flying the B-17? What was that like? I'm trying to be as honest with you and me both as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was apprehensive when I first got into it. It was so big. I learned how to cope with that. Mm-hmm. I felt more as more I got into it. I'm, I'll try to get to answer your question just a minute. I enjoyed it more. I'd go out and on the solo, solo meaning I was the only pilot and the co pilot and I, but we had a crew, but not no instructors, meant what that meant. Okay. I'd go out and fight formation inside the wing and these all those other things. And to answer your question, I'm going around round circles, excuse me, <laughs> That's all right. to answer your question, it was a joy to fly. Uh, and I drove it all the time. I, I didn't use the, the automatic pilot very much once in a while, yes. But it was a joy to fly. Responded so nicely to mm-hmm. what you had. Uh, right. And was it easy to control? with there pulleys or what kind of... Uh, we had a lot a, of work? We had a dual system, both electronic and physical. Hmm. The 24s had a hydraulic system. Ours was electric. The B-24s? The, the B-24s were, right. were hydraulic. They had hydraulics, you know, to, to the sure. elevator and the elevators and they were on and so forth. So ours were electric and physical. Wow. And, so, and this was a savior, too, by the way. Mm. So it was quite easy to do. 
quite good, and it, re- it responded nicely. You could feel, you could drive by feel a whole lot. Mm-hmm. A very easy airplane to fly, a very easy one to land. Uh-huh. Of course, you can't. The only problem you had when landing, these uh, late fighter jocks <laughs> come in, and they they have tricycle gears, so they come in and and they see a drift, and on the on the runway they correct it, and as they're coming in, and in the last minute they see they kick rudder and and go him in straight. We came in like that, but when we had to fly in to, to do three-point landings. Because it was a tail dragger, the B-17, right? It <laughs> That's was, right, yeah. yeah. So it was a little more difficult, mm-hmm. but you could do it. But okay. that was only, I don't have any problem, didn't have any problem with it. I had to really be on my toes when sure. I did that. But you could you bring it in, and you cut it back, and you let it fall, and you let it fall, and you see where it is, and all of a sudden you kick it straight and pull the cubs and it throttle back, and you hit the ground. <laughs> the B-17 had the most beautiful sound to it mm. when it hit the ground. The, the brakes squeaked. They squeaked, and you could always hear B-17 coming in. Yeah. It squeaked so loud. All right. Love the airplane. Love yeah. it. And did you find it to be very reliable, obviously, with the four engines? Oh, you have some redundancy. Yes. Oh, but... yes, yes. I never had an engine to go out on me. Really? In the time, the whole time I flew it. And finally, when we got to combat, we uh, flew an airplane that wasn't in good shape. And I had trouble with the um, turbochargers. And so I jockeyed the throttle the whole, the whole mission. We were all over the airplane because of the runway, the, the props would run away and kinds of things like mm-hmm. this. What we did, the mission got back. I don't know how pertinent that is, but it's very easy to handle. Okay. Let's talk about the crew again. You said it was a crew of roughly yeah, 10. 10 total. Okay. And so you had two pilots and then a navigator right. and a bombardier. Correct. Now, were they all officers? Yes, four officers. And then the six remaining were the various well, the Now, uh, Geneva Convention... And I'm answering your question, but I had to go around and around. The <laughs> Geneva right. Convention called for treatment of prisoners of war. So in all the nations that had joined the Geneva Convention agreed that, that POWs would be handled humanely. But also, they were their, their humaneness was done in tiers, the highest tier meaning no bad treatment, then on down you didn't get as much food and not as good a quarters, and on down the lower you got a very little, a little food and you had to work hard and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we had about three levels, the Geneva Convention. In your airplane? No, in the, no, the Geneva they Oh, in general. Okay. Call for that. So I'll, all of our enlisted guys, there were sergeants or staff sergeants. Okay. Buck sergeants or task sergeants, seven, mm-hmm. because, of course, they were technical, but also because of the convention, they would be treated more kindly when they, ah. if they, if they got out. So you had a mix of the officer and the enlisted? Oh, yeah. yeah. The senior was the flight engineer who stood right behind me, and he, he manned the top two guns. Like, he's the one who hit me on the shoulder when I saw these airplanes coming in. Right. You know, helped me to remember. So he helped me fly the airplane. Okay. How about between the pilot and the co-pilot, what were the shared responsibilities? Was it always that one flew and the other did something else, or would you trade back and forth? Or A lot of that was personality, I think. Yeah. A lot of that, of that was determined by personality. Okay. Gene Bianco, he was Italian-born and from Syracuse, New York. His job was to watch the 
engine and gas and, and a feed and food mixture and watch that kind of thing. And also when he got in combat to keep an eye for being an observer. Sure. It was his primary job. I flew most of the time, actually handled the airplane most of the time. I'd say 60, 75% of the time. You were flying? I flew it. Okay. I drove it, yeah. Okay. As he drove it. I was <laughs> on the controls, controlling sure. it. Yeah. But now I watched the pitch control. Watch that carefully. And incidentally, if you did not have the pitch done properly, incidentally, the pitch is the amount of bite that the propeller takes of the air. It's like a screw. Mm -hmm. And so you change, you can control the pitch. If you have a high pitch, like a not very much, not much of a bite or low, low pitch. If you had a low pitch, you had a lot of power, but no speed, not to speak of. Okay. So we would take off. We wouldn't have a lot of speed. So we put our pitch into a lower, taking a more bite. Okay. Taking a more bite. But by doing so, it also put a greater strain on the engines. Sure. To take that larger bite. Mm -hmm. So as the minute we our wheels left the ground, we pull the engine back and adjust the prop pitch control. And then we go to flying and flying levels and so forth. Sure. My job was to handle the throttles and the prop pitch now, Gene, the co-pilot's job was to watch the fuel mixture. Mm -hmm. We had gasoline. We had for, a handle for each one of the engines, and you would adjust the gasoline and air that the engines got. You wanted to have enough because if you didn't, they wouldn't work well or overheat. But you had too much, they wouldn't work well either. So he had to watch that all the time. <laughs> okay. Now, all and all three of them, both he and I and, and the engineer, kept our eyes on the, on the uh the compass, because that was such a critical thing. Hmm. Then the radio operator sat in back of the bomb bay. The bomb bay consisted of two racks. Mm -hmm. You could have 500-pound bombs, and each one of them had two racks. In order to get from the front pilot's area uh -huh. to the back, you had to walk on those very narrow catwalk between the bomb range, bomb racks. Huh. And incidentally, the only toilet we had was uh, called a pito tube. Well, it was a tube uh -huh. with a funnel on the end. And in order to go to the bathroom, we had to go out back there in the Bombay and stand in that, in that passageway. <laughs> and now, Because you had very long flights, right? The oh, yeah, we did. Yes, we could did, fly, yeah. what, up to 10 hours? Well, I think my longest was about eight and a half. Wow. But you have to go sometimes. Sure. I think I used it one time because I was made careful and I was going to not have to go. Because mm -hmm. here's a pain. Okay. When we were flying altitude, which we did all the time, mm -hmm. we had our regular trousers on like we have, our, 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 our flying suit. Then we had electric suit over that. Sure. Now, in order to use the toilet, you had to go through that electric suit, then through the the uh, regular travel suit you have, uh -huh. then you throw your underwear and get to yourself so you can pee. It's a long, hard... <laughs> you that's, a, that's a process. <laughs> it was. All and right. then, because of the altitude, you really were not very uh, ma manly. Oh, I don't know whether you... <laughs> 
In other words, the blood was more needed elsewhere? Well, yes, and you had to find <laughs> your penis because it was so cold, <laughs> and you didn't find it all the time, and you did, so you peed in your pants. <laughs> Which is great at first because it's warm, but then it's no good after that, yes. That's I'm, right. But no, I'm trying oh to be This is what we like on this show. This is the reality of what you had to deal with. So in other words, you practiced, if I may, tactical dehydration. You tried not to drink too much water because then you'd have to go to the bathroom <laughs> too much, Absolutely. Right? I think I interrupted your story for a long time before, but you obviously finally made your way over to England in uh, right. 1943. Well, let, me, let me tell you that, the jobs of the people. Oh, I was yeah, a yeah. radio operator, very okay. good. He didn't see anything because he was paying his little little cabin, did not have the, the turret on top mm. like some of the airplanes did. Okay. He did not. He sat there and he had these... Uh, Transformers, I'll call them that, on the floor of the, the airplane. They're about four or five inches high above the, the floor, and he would rest his foot on them when he was working. He had a long antenna, which he could let out at an in-flight, mm. and that would give us distance. Ah. And um, then he'd reach it back in when we got ready to land. But I'm jumping around a little bit. But they, okay. We got a hold in the airplane every mission I was on. I was on 10 missions. A hole in the airplane? A hole from flak or from from, okay. from fighters or something. Sure. Every time. And one day, a piece of flak came in through the bottom and hit this transformer. He was on his foot uh-huh. and kicked his foot up in the air. And, no kidding. And he called me on the phone. He said, hey, Skipper, they're getting a little bit better down there. <laughs> Didn't hurt his foot. It just lifted it up a bit. Oh, heavens. Well, we're going to get to uh, a story you have here in a moment about uh, they got a little better yet after that, right? So, Oh, yes. Okay. Well, we had a hole every time we went out. Every time. That's amazing. It, uh, every on mission, every yeah. mission. Okay. That was his job to do the radio okay. and help us with our, our direction and so forth. Okay. The waste gunners uh, just had to see to us that things were in good shape back there. We had two waste gunners, right. two windows on each side, mm-hmm. and those guys would have to stand in those windows with their single 50-caliber machine guns right. and fly to and shoot from the side. Now, I'm digressing. Imagine yourself. You have a squirt gun, okay, mm-hmm. but you see something out there that you want to hit. You're going this way. That other guy's going this way, or maybe he's going this way, maybe. But you had to shoot this gun so to make that stream go around in a circle and hit this other guy when he's passed by. <laughs> you with me? Because of the airstreams and the airstreams uh, and, and the different speeds and mm-hmm. everything like that. How they ever hit anybody, I do not know. Well, did they have special airplanes that in training they could fly up and let them shoot? At, we had that a little bit, yes, okay. a little bit. And did it give a light if they hit it, or I forget how they did I don't know really how they scored. I okay. really don't know, don't remember that. I don't think we had a light as such. No, okay, I might be confusing that with a different. So it was probably on-the-job training, and if you had instant feedback, then you could adjust yeah, from there, right? Yeah, it would be something like And they would that. share stories with each other on yeah, best oh, practices, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Especially with the shack that we talked about earlier. Right. You know, we, we talked about that. But their job in the wind, the, in the back by the rear part of the airplane, was to shoot airplanes that were coming in from the side. Right. Because they didn't have much area to cover. Mm-hmm. They could only go so high and so low and, and so much forward and so far back. They were and, limited because they had the wings and the right. tail and... 
everything else. So, was it up to them to not shoot the wing off, or was there a mechanical stop on the machine? Um, yeah, they had machine guns mounted near the window, so they may have had mechanical stop. That would seem the know. most prudent. May have, may have, yeah. Okay. It, it makes sense, yes. <laughs> but it would be impossible to hit an airplane. They, they Okay, airplanes were doing 200 miles an hour, we'll say. Uh-huh. Our airspeed, ground speed. Right. It was 150 miles an hour, top speed. Top speed? Uh-huh. Oh, boy. I mean, I say top. It's, well, if sure. you flew you higher than that, you would damage the engines. Okay. So we flew all our missions at 150 miles an hour. That's standing still, relatively. Yes, it is. <laughs> Even though we were 20, we, we flew, I think our lowest mission was 27,000, and we flew from 31 to 29,000 feet on our bomb run. Okay. It's five miles up. And that's hard to be accurate, but you had a good bombardier, you said. Well, Norden bomb site. Mm. I ran it one time to see how it worked. The Norden bomb site was was a top secret or secret matter at that point in time, but it enabled, and also the airplane had automatic pilot on it, so the pilot could put it on cruise control, if you will. Right. And then it'd fly by itself. But the bombardier had had a control for that on that cruise control. So he could put the airplane where he needed. That's right. He could now he could adjust the elevation up or down a little bit and side to side, left to right. Sure. He could adjust that to make his bomb site be compatible uh-huh. with that Norden bomb site. Now, because it was top secret at the time. At the time. We had, now if we flew in 18 ship formations, six airplanes in the first squadron, mm-hmm. six airplanes in the second squadron, which was up and all, and flew off that first squadron's wing, mm-hmm. six in the lower squadron, and they flew off the airplane's wing. Mm-hmm. So that's how we flew 18 airplanes and would drop our bombs at the same time. Now, would all of them do their own triangulation or, or bomb calculations, or would they just watch for one to drop and then they'd all drop? Good point. Because of the secrecy of the bomb site, we were told that the only airplanes that had the bomb site in them were the lead and second lead. Okay. Of all 18 or of each all element? All 18. Of-, of the first 18 airplanes... Only two of them had the bomb site. Okay. The first airplane, the say they lead in the number two, mm-hmm. that squadron. So we all dropped, we dropped bombs on, on them. Or they gave the signal, or they showed, you know, we opened their bomb bay doors, we did. Right. And it was probably predetermined what was going to happen. I don't know what kind of communication existed when they dropped. They may have done give us a radio number, I don't know. But the bombardier's job was to watch that lead airplane, and when they dropped, he dropped. Okay. Now, we didn't drop like a, all the big to one time. We had what they called an intervalometer hmm. on the bomb site. Mm-hmm. He didn't because he didn't have bomb sites. The lead did. If we wanted to do a lot of widespread bombing, we would let them drop in intervals, bang, 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 bang. Or if we had a... Another kind of, we, we could all drop at the same time, all depending right. on the target. Sure, if you wanted to concentrate the impact or spread it out. Yeah, we hit Berlin four times, and we had it uh, intervalometer, because we just wanted to do as much damage as we could. 
Then let's go back to the tail gunner now. And he, the poor fellow, not poor fellow, he, he was way back in the very end. Uh-huh. And he was comfortable. He had, had good quarters. See, the guys in the wings had to stand all the time. To right. Everybody else sat. Okay. And, he, and the tail gunner, he could, I think he lay there, I'm not sure, but he, he had two guns and he can use them at his, he had a pretty uh, wide spectrum. Because it's like a cone that he had. Okay. And he had twin guns, I think, right? Twin guns back there, uh-huh. single guns in the side. Engineer had a, had double guns. On the top. I think in the later airplanes, we had two guns in the ten. To ten. Oh, yeah, in no, the chin. Yeah. Two in the bottom, two in the ball turret, too. Uh, underneath, yep. Yeah. He was my number one concern in combat because I can just see him being in that, that ball and we got hit, and we're falling, and jumping out in the parachute, and he's still there. Uh, it was almost frightening to me. Mm-hmm. And so I remember when we got hit with the, from the fighter, I said, get Vasilik out of that ball. I remember now jumping on the intercom, and then there's two wing, um, two side gunners would get help him get out of the ball. Did he get in there from the beginning of the flight or go down Prior uh, and, to expected and, combat kind of thing. Uh, no, he would get into the ball, oh, after we had taken off, and then we started getting to our positions. Right, okay. Yeah, because he was not totally comfortable in there. He had to scrunch up, you know. And, right. And after, when we got back, that's when we left enemy territory, he'd get out. Okay. Now, let's talk about, because you, you alluded to it now, but you did so many missions over Germany right. in 1944. 44, uh, correct. Okay. And let's talk about some of those missions. Uh, you said you attacked Berlin. What other, any other noteworthy attacks prior to, there was one where you had a takeoff but no landing, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that was Archer Schleben. And I think it was a, a, a gun manufacturer or okay. mechanical. Play. Now, remember who we were. We were not the guys, we were... <laughs> They don't do as I say, do as I do. We were guys in the back, and we just did what we were told. Okay. Now, I'm not being nasty in saying that, but mm-hmm. our upper echelon didn't want us to know too much. Oh. We didn't need it and wouldn't do any good. In other words, just fly in formation and yeah, drop when the guy yeah, drops? Yeah, fly and follow me and do what I do. Okay. And we understood that. It was not a problem, but they, they are the ones who had the intelligence information. Okay. And also the navigators— and my navigator was very good, and he was given some intelligence information, more than I had. Really? More than I have. And going forward, we got captured and went to this um, interrogation center. They had spies in England, so they knew the airplanes, knew when they took off, and they knew all these kinds of things. And I'm doing around circles, but I need to tell a little story in order to get to the story. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided 
design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoraviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoraviation.com careers. Visit today. We would be briefed to fly at a particular air of a particular altitude. We knew our positions in the formation, but we would be able to fly and bomb at a particular altitude. We were told this in our briefing. And this time we were, we were briefed at a particular level. May have been 27 or 28,000 feet, I don't know. But at the runway, and on the takeoff runway, they had a big blackboard set up and said Angel Plus Two, which told us that we were flying at our prescribed altitude plus 2,000 feet. That was our last, last mission. So they hit Oxford And apparently they did that because of gunner, gunnery range, and things mm-hmm. of that sort. Okay. So that's what we did. But Oxerslaven is the one where we hit the target, okay, and we left and did our diving turn to the left or right. Beautiful to see 18 airplanes all diving at the same time and mm-hmm. turning out. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we went to start on our way home, and an engineer, I forget who it was, said, notice we had an airplane coming toward us. And, Emmy, well, it was Emmy 109, mm-hmm. and we we all could see it pretty much the same time. You could see the guns, the shells coming out of the nose. Messerschmitt 109 had a gun which fired through the propeller hub, meaning that the pilot could aim his airplane like a rifle and make it go, make the shell go wherever he wanted to. Instead of on the wings. That's right, because on the wings, the fighter, fighter jocks had to have their uh, bullets, their tracer, if they converge, it's something like 600 yards away or something. They had it fixed so they'd converge there. And how they ever got those uh, those mechanical gun sights to tell you anything, I don't know. Because <laughs> I... I tried to read them. I couldn't read them. But the 109 could shoot through its propeller without hitting itself. Right. That's and right. so that so became more accurate. A lot, of, a lot of accuracy. And what number mission was this for you? Tenth. This, this was the tenth, tenth mission. Now, okay. my son had been doing some looking into this thing for me, and he said the record says I had 12 missions. Well, I don't remember, but my record says 12. I know that I flew one mission as spare. No, well, took off as spare and came home. Okay. As I was supposed Maybe to. Maybe they counted that one. And I flew as spare on another engine another time when the guy did drop out and I flew, went on and flew. Oh, okay. All right. I say 10, he said 12. Okay. It didn't make a whole lot of difference, right. really. Now, was this the first time your airplane was being targeted by a f- enemy fighter on this 10th mission, as we're going to call it? Or had you been shot at before? I mean, obviously, you dealt with flak. I really don't remember any other attacks. Okay. Maybe one or two. I remember one more, but maybe... maybe A yeah, quick slashing yeah. attack. Yeah, this one incident I'll tell you about. I did pretty well. I've been flying it, and I was decent, you know, in being able to do what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So I started flying second element lead in the squadrons. Okay, we had... Remember, we had... Three squadrons of mm-hmm. six airplanes. Right. 
each squadron having three airplanes. Okay, so I was lead in the second squad, second element. One day, the day I want to tell you about, of the upper squadron. Mm-hmm. And I was flying along fat, dumb, and happy because we had a lot of while to go to get to the target. And I was lollygagging, not keeping up in the formation. So they hey, abandoned 12 o'clock level. So I poured the coal that thing mm-hmm. and not <laughs> to get back into place. Because what? There was safety in numbers? Oh, yeah, yeah, because that's, the formations were designed to be able to get the most firepower going this way, ah. this way, this way, this way, up, and this down, way. Down, forward, back, left, yeah, right. Yeah, and they did. The okay. way they were set up, they were always designed. They were pretty smart cookies. We were. Sure. To well, do someone spent some time studying yeah, the yeah, optimal that's response. Right, okay. Yeah. So anyway, the particular time, and I was late, and I was getting, trying to get back up with my group, and it, I was at fault in that respect, no mm. question about it. Mm-hmm. But it's 109 came toward us. I could see it. It wasn't firing, but flew right under my left wing. And I tell you what, I mean, I could rec- I'd know him today if he didn't have, had not had his mask on. He was that close under my left wing. Wow. Playing. Right on his tail was the most beautiful P-51 you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Fish tailing and shooting at him, shooting the hell out of him. <laughs> and they just happened to come right to, by I you. I tried to huh? kiss him. He went by He wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, war is raging all around you. So let's get back to the ME-109 that's got you in his sights now. Okay. Okay. All right. So he's coming in from what direction? Uh, straight ahead, 12 o'clock oh, gosh. level. All right. I could see the tracers. Going off in his guns. Okay. Couldn't move. It was too, well, I couldn't move that fast. I felt a thud in my right wing, and he hit the right engine. One or two, I don't know. He may have hit both of them. I remember when it happened, I did what we're supposed to do. I pulled the power back, and, and I put the turned the um, fire extinguishers on mm-hmm. at one in each of the engines. But um, uh, we were not doing too bad. I was dropping down out of the formation, and he made another pass at us and came on from underneath this time, more, more or less a, well, this angle, what is it, a quarter of a 45 degree. They shot more, and the bombardier was in the catwalk going from the pilot's compartment down to the bombardier's compartment. And he was there, and they hit him in the chest with a 50 caliber. Hmm. And so, but he got hit, I could feel it, and I saw him, and he saw blood coming out of his mouth. And so I knew he was gone. And about that time, or before, no, no, before that, I had rung the bell to bail out. And, of course, I made some intercom connections, too, but people were getting out because the, the alarm had gone off. And they all got out except him. I got, was getting out, and the airplane, I hadn't put it on automatic pilot yet after the hits. Mm-hmm. It got went up on his right wing because it, it was... That's where all the thrust was. So I got back in the seat, and everybody got out, and I got the airplane straightened out and put it on automatic pilot. So they would fly. Mm-hmm. With a, you would fly skewed like, then I jumped out. Hmm. I went out the bombardier's hatch with me and jumped and looked down. And you know what? I had no alternative. None at all. I go down. I don't, I'm not going to stay there in the airplane burning. So I got out and looked down there. Lord, help me get through this. Mm. And I did and went out and tumbled a few times. Then the chute, oh, pull this, I pulled the chute. Remember, I had enough 
enough awareness, I said, okay, it's about time to pull the ripcord now. And I was thinking that clearly, and don't ask me why or how, but training must have been the answer. Mm-hmm. But I was given that kind of training and had that kind of reaction. And so I pulled the ripcord, and well, it's about time for it to open. Look back, and I saw it trailing out behind me. And I don't remember too much after that, but then uh, the chute got caught in a tree, and I was let down. My feet didn't even sting when I hit the ground. That's how comfortable it was. <laughs> and where were you at this point? I was near the Belgian border on the way home. In funnies, I had a lot of funnies happen. And I feel so strongly about this that I must, well, I tell everybody until everybody doesn't want to hear it or blue in the face or something. Did I tell you about waking up and being afraid? No. I flew the first mission scared. Understandably. Very scared. Sure. I, I flew it on the right side to you know, get me oriented and so forth. The right side of the? Right, of the, uh, of the airplane. I was co-pilot. Okay. And, but I flew it. So they wanted, they wanted to see if I could handle it. Sure. Almost vomited. I was so scared. Because the fighters, of the, the flak was coming up. And I could see it and feel it and... And so I was very much aware of it. So on the second mission, I was the first pilot, and I got up scared. This is as real as I can ever, as can ever be. I said, Lord, it's today the day I get killed. The little prayer. And such a tremendous relief fell over me. Really? Now, I'm saying this, and I'll preach it to the high heavens. I don't give a darn. I said, Lord, help me get through with this. Now, psychologically, I think it meant that, hey, stupid, you know, you don't have any control, so go ahead and forget it. I think that may be the psychology of it, <laughs> but I'll have to give the Lord credit for it. There you go. Okay? But after that, after being awakened and having that, I, I was afraid. I was scared, but I wasn't Frantic? I don't know what another fearful. word would be. You weren't fearful anymore, maybe? I wasn't you were... fearful, yes. Sure. I knew what happened was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that helped me get through my flying missions. The same thing. When I go out there and fly in a parachute, mm-hmm. same thing. And I said, thank you, Lord, for getting me here. Mm-hmm. I mean it, really, because this is the way it was. Oh, my feet didn't even sting. <laughs> I had a gentle landing. and But you were all spread out, your crew was, right? So yeah, all did any of you yes. meet up, or was that well, impossible? Well, um, three of us, yeah, we got together. After it happened, we were oh. under under control at that point, but three of us were put together. Let me tell you one funny thing. A lot of funny things happened. <laughs> I was smoking at the time, okay. and I had a Zippo lighter, right. which is a rather difficult thing to come by. Mm. Because you didn't have those things all over. And he searched me and saw the lighter, and he took it. And I remember looking at him, and I, uh-uh, I went back. And he gave it back to me. <laughs> well, hold on. let's. We're getting ahead. Who is this? That, who's the he? Okay, I'm sorry. Excuse <laughs> me. A motorcycle guard, a motorcycle person, mm-hmm. appeared at the top of the hill. My got in a tree. They'd seen you coming down. Yeah, and I'd already gotten my out of my chute, and I was supposed to be throwing I threw it this way and I was supposed to go this way, you right. know, like we told. He came over the hill and came down. Now, he had guns on him. He didn't have a gun in his hand. He came right down, and so— This is a German soldier? Then he searched me, uh-huh. and I gave him the lighter, and this is when he 
when uh, yeah, he took it and shut up. He didn't talk anymore. I mean, he didn't scream at me anymore. Okay. So I knew that and sort of felt that that's what he wanted. But he made me take my parachute to Mumbai West, which is a flotation device. Yes. And walk, oh, I don't know, quarter of a mile. Not very far. It's a little town of Nienburg, Germany, which was near um, Belgium. And we got there. And here again, I think I was in shock, if anything. But we got there to the place, a little village, and the man with a the big uh, uh, squirrel gun came out about that long. And he was my guard, and he was told, I can see by motions, that to guard me, the driver of the uh, motorcycle policeman, this screaming his head off at me, I took my Zippo lighter out and gave it to him. He shut up and left. This was after he had already given it back to you and you put your hand out? Okay. Did you fly with sidearms, like a pistol? Okay. We started out, yes. No, we had them when I went overseas. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't remember when it was. Let's say, I never did carry it on a a mission. Okay. So they didn't have to de-arm you when they they captured you? Because they, the powers that be, saw that it was very difficult for us to try to escape. Right. And a gun that just caused us to have more problems. Mm. Okay. So I tried to turn my gun in. So this is May of 1944? April. 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 Okay. April. And so nine out of the ten of you made it, and your... Correct. Your mm-hmm. one crew member was uh, one dispatched in the airplane before and, yes, everyone else mm-hmm. failed out. Okay. And so what did they do with you at that point? We went to this little village, and uh, the guard captured two others, uh, the co-pilot and the radio operator. And we put us together, and we start walking to the Army Army Post, which is a compound. And um, (laughs) uh, it was April the 29th. It was two years a day that I'd gotten my my wings. (laughs) 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 With the car running. But um, a nice, pretty little German girl was coming on her bicycle, coming down the road toward us like this. The... uh, the radio operator, his name was Euless C. Briggs, so we called him Useless. You know, we, we had a we had a good an case. early call sign. Okay, yeah, yeah. but he came. He did the wolf whistle Uh-oh. at her as she was riding by, and I said, "Briggs, shut up! Don't do that." <laughs> Not a thing happened, but he did. We were there's a guard with a gun in their back, and he did yeah, that. he's still making cat calls, huh? So, All right, but anyway, went on. We went on to the. Yeah, the German post uh-huh. where, the, uh, where the military was. I was given some bread, which is not very good, and some coffee, which was even worse, <laughs> and put into a cell which had an inclined wooden bed on it. And that was where I uh, spent the night. This is now when I got shot down, it was about 10 30, 11, in the morning. So by the time I got there, it was in the afternoon. So went in and they didn't interrogate me anything, but go went ahead and uh, put me in jail. Okay. I could hear airplanes. And I was in the area. I thought on the ground, and I thought, now if I can escape, I can get in one of those airplanes. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, a man has to have something to keep his brain stimulated. Yeah, that's right. All right. Okay. So that happens at that point. Food was horrible. Uh, they just coffee and and bread was just well. It was something in your stomach and I made it. Right. I smoked at the time, but I had not had a cigarette for a long time. Got out the 
I think being taken to the the room, to the his cell, I had phlegm in my throat. So I coughed it up and was going to spit it out, and I went over to the side of the walk, this pathway, and I, my spittle hit on the on the walkway rather than the bit in the weeds. German guard saw it, Uh-oh. and he was on his head. They were doing a gas mask exercise. Started screaming at me through his gas mask, and I knew what he was doing. Well, he had done that was a horrible thing for somebody to do a spit in, okay. in Germany. All right. So I reached down. I remember cleaning it up with my hand, and he kicked me. And you know, he was screaming, screaming, screaming the whole mm-hmm. time at me. And I sort of felt yeah, into it. So yeah, I felt that's what he wanted. So I cleaned it up. He, I saw it coming. But I raised my hand. And I think he hit my arm. Didn't hurt me a bit. But anyway, he'd got my attention. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then he took me on to jail and spent the night. Went by train from there to our interrogation center. Now, en route, have you been to Germany? I have. Okay, you know the, how the train stations are? They're huge train stations. Mm-hmm. Well, we went to one of those. A lot of the windows were out because of bombings and so forth. But we were transferred from one train to another. And the civilians there, were, there were about a dozen of them inside over there. This is the cream of the high heaven mm-hmm. when they saw who we were. Right. But the guards protected us. Mm. And we were taken on to the, the Stalag. I forget what they called it, the... Luft is air in German, right. and Stalag is camp. So I don't name. I don't know the name. It was an interrogation center. All right. They knew everything about me. Names the crew. In fact, one of them got named my fiance. <laughs> uh, they didn't really question me too much because they knew I didn't know anything. And I told them about yeah, yes, who I met, and that's my crew. The interrogator is the one who who asked me. I had that information. And he gave me a cigarette to smoke, and he was a Belgian or something. But a very nice guy, spoke good English. And he asked me about all these things, and mm-hmm. I went on. As I said, I knew nothing, and they knew I knew nothing. That was the interesting thing. They even asked me why we changed our altitude before takeoff. Remember the— Right, the blackboard with a plus two? They knew that. They knew that they had been changed— they wouldn't know why it had been changed. So they had an informer on the base? Yes. Wow. Tremendously. Of course, we had spies in their group, too. But sure. They knew a whole lot about us. Hmm. And they kept my navigator at the interrogation an extra day oh. because of this factor. Because he, he, he knew more about things right. that was going than I did. Yeah. And I was happy about that. Hell, I didn't want to know anything. <laughs> well, I'm sure you were relieved to see your crew. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I was. I don't know who was with me on the train, but we went by train mm-hmm. near Breslau, Poland, and got off the train. We were in prison cars with belt, with uh, bars in the window. Mm-hmm. Got out, and we're standing milling around after getting off the train, and a German guard stood on the loading platform up there and Remember, we were still in stroke, this, in, in shock. This was six days, five days after I'd gotten shot down, something like six or six or seven days. And he was standing on the platform, and he had his head mean-looking. He had guns bristling all over him, and as mean as he can be. And he says, Jesus Christ, fellas, where are you guys from? 
had he had the most beautiful Brooklynese accent you have ever heard in your life. Okay. He, he was the first thing we had heard. He said, Rouse Metal, go, get him. See, Rouse Metal, miss him. Knock now, knock now, make fast. Uh-huh. That's all we had heard for three, four, five, six days. Right. And here, this guy speaking Brooklyn good, English, good huh? English, good right. wonderful English. Then uh, we all gathered around him, and he started hating, you know, who, yeah, my, my cousin, yeah, and they, so they sort of had some some relatives. He had gone from, he lived in the United States, had gone to England for some reason, maybe to visit his parents or something, uh-huh. got him pressed into the military. That's what he was doing, but he was telling us what was going on. This was the 7th or the 8th day of June, of 1944, 1944, mm-hmm. the day after D-Day. D-Day. Mm-hmm. Our morale shot up like you've never seen before. Can you imagine here with the BOWs not was what not knowing what was going to happen, mm-hmm. and we were told they've done the start of the invasion. And I tell you what, our, our Marines they've, they've shot up. I bet we were taken to the Stalag. Stalag Luft Three. Stalag is prison, Luft is air, and the number three. This was the camp near Breslau, Poland. Breslau was, I mean, the Poland, the border was just very close to our end of our camp. That's how far we were. Now, the compound, and this is my calculations just from memory about how large it was, was about 500 plus acres. Now, I'm guessing at that because I don't know. Each of the compounds held 2,000 people. We had barracks like Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes, just exactly like ours, yeah. And you see the relationship they had. We had not as good a relationship with the guards, but pretty good. Hmm. It didn't have any positive bad treatment at all. No torture? No. We were officers. And the Geneva Convention prohibited that. Right. We were held there for a long period of time. Uh, as officers, we had to do nothing. All we had to do was survive. The Germans gave us half of Red Cross parcel a week. We were supposed to get a whole one. Well, we grow hungry all the time. Mm. They fed us one day, one time a week. Their bread was these, this horrible German bread. <laughs> it was terrible. But they fed us whatever they had. Sure. And they fed it. You know, there was a big... Thing it looks like a turnip, about that big, has a name for it, purple on top and around. Mm-hmm. And they would give us when they were had been grown. They would give us up that was our meal for the day, or sometimes various kinds of things. Not they were not bad. Not very much of it though. I went down about 155 pounds, and that's why I was there because I was all the time. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of talent among those guys in there. Remember who we were. Mm-hmm. We were guys who were 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, sort of in the prime of our youth, growing up in, <laughs> in activity, right. had good musicians, good people who were in college. I had one semester of college. You know, we had a good bunch of people, a good, pretty mm-hmm. well-educated people. Mm-hmm. We had one man, one man, or several, who wrote a parody on our being there. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, we were Stalag, we were B.O.W.s, we were Kriegies. Krieg is Krieg Gefangenen, Krieg is war, Gefangenen is prisoner. 
Okay. We were Craig's Kefunkinen, K-R-E-I-G-S. you got to spell the rest of it. I can't. <laughs> but we called ourselves Kriegies. It was our nickname. I have to give you the background of these things. Again, the, the quality of the aptitude that our people have is fabulous. We wrote this song about our prison camp. And it was based on, see if you can remember, if you can identify the melody, which I hope I can do. Don't know why there's no sugar in my pie. Creaky rations. My appetite has overcome my passions. I'm hungry all the time. Table's bare. There's no food there anywhere. It's starvation. My soul has reached the depth of degradation. I'm hungry all the time. I dream of ham and eggs and then wake up all dyspeptic, something, something. And all my, my coffee is, I'll think, my call is nothing. And that bread is it's nothing. To, it's except the arcane words, hungry as I am, soon die up diabetic. That's when I blow my top. Can't go on. And then I said, that was it. Can't go on. You still remember that pretty well? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 75 years later? Yeah. Oh, dear. That was stormy weather. Stormy weather. So you took that. All right. And it said so much in such a little time. Sure. Well, you need a way to process the experience you're in. You're confined, but you're not horribly maltreated. That's exactly right. Whatever the issue is, in this case, lack of food, that becomes what you focus on. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Food was our number one subject Mm -hmm. of conversation. Right. We smoked. Remember, we were 20 to 30-year-old guys. So I'm guessing we're talking about girls, too. But we didn't even talk about girls. We talked about food. (laughs) Now, this is true. This is true. Uh, Food was our first number one uh, issue of, of, of thoughts. Okay. But I have to point out that we had a lot, a lot, a lot of talent. And we can keep the era, the, the, the band, if you will, of, yeah. of people we had. I'm trying not to brag here, but everybody in there had to be in the upper level of our country in terms of physical ability mm-hmm. and reasoning ability and maturity and sure. things of this sort. We all had to be up there. We had a 14-piece a band. <laughs> Who provided the instruments? The YWCA provided instruments, and we had, and we had professionals wow. playing and doing music for us. Had uh, concerts, and the mm-hmm. Germans came, and they loved it, and everybody <laughs> had a good time. You know, Mr. Hicks, my father, who recently passed away, was a foot soldier in World War II. He carried his trumpet everywhere he went. He was a combat engineer, and he fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, was he liberated uh, a prisoner of war camp, not yours. But he, at the end of the war, had a band as well with Hank Mancini, and they played in the south of France for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, he tried to get Hank to write music, and apparently he didn't want to do it. And finally he came back, and of course we all know that he wrote Pink Panther and a bunch of others. But it's interesting to hear you talk about music, because when I think of World War II, particularly with my father, who we buried just a a few Fridays ago, that was a big subject of the conversation was he carried his trumpet everywhere he went and always put together a band. So it sounds like you did as well. How old was your father when he died? Not quite 94. 
in '94. He was born in '25. So he was a kid when he was over there. Oh, he went and uh, he turned 18 in 1943. Yeah. Now think of the hell he went through. Oh, he never spoke of it. You know. Now he had a hard time. This is. I, I feel almost guilty that I didn't have any of that. Mm. I'm not, I know it's not right to feel guilty because I had no control, but I feel. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to say respectful. Mm. Because I did not go through that crap. Well, but you spent almost a year or more than a year 11, in captivity. No, eleven months. Eleven months. Eleven months. Yeah. Wow. But uh, but the thing is, I didn't go through the crap that he went through. The hell, because he had as either a book private or something. When he he ended up a tech sergeant. Okay. Well, he may have gotten a little bit better treatment, but our sergeants that owned my airplane mm. had to work on the farms. Mm. Oh, in the captivity. Yeah. Oh, wow. See, we didn't. We didn't have to turn a hand over. Wow. We have to take care of ourselves. But they made them forced labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. yeah. Poor guards. They were just almost as bad off as we were in terms of. I've got a lot of funnies. <laughs> I can talk for three hours. I don't know uh, how long the listener wants to uh, stay tuned, but I'm sure they love your stories. Um, Buchenwald is the uh, camp he liberated. Just finally. Oh man, that was the crazy stuff. That wasn't a prisoner of war camp. That was a. SS for the type, Jews. Uh, yeah. It affected him the rest of his life. What was your liberation like? Absolutely wonderful. Okay. We spent our time there in December of 44. We could hear the Russian guns coming in. Mm-hmm. The Battle of Bulls was going on in December, if you recall. Yes. And we knew nothing about it, really, other than, than that. We went to uh, Nuremberg. We spent a short time there. And had to walk about a hundred kilometers from Nuremberg to Mooseburg, Germany. When was this? What time? This was April forty-five. Right. Sure. Yeah, we'd learned enough German to communicate with the people. If you had a, a D bar, which was a high protein chocolate bar and cigarettes, you could buy the moon. <laughs> You could barter for other things. We had those things. Like gold bars. And so right. they, we used them as such, too. Mm-hmm. I heard, and that I have no bearing, that one guy got disease on the march, but I didn't. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, a, a certain type of disease? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he had cigarettes and chocolate? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no question about it. But we traded some cigarettes for this uh, cart, a two-wheeled cart that the people used to move uh, their, their goods from home. from the, Sure. The uh, garden up, and we were four of us together, and they put our gear into that cart, and we did 100 miles pushing that cart. Here's a piece of cake. <laughs> Ten miles a day, but a piece of cake. Oh, gosh. I must tell you about the release. April the 29th, which my, was which my graduation now, anniversary. Three years yeah, earlier. Uh-huh. Um, we heard no- noises as Sunday. It was on a Sunday, heard the sounds of guns and so forth. And then we saw a tank coming over the top of the hill. And it was Patton's tank. Hmm. And he was in the first or the second tank. I don't know which one. General Patton himself? Patton himself. himself. And then the tank ran through it, broke the gates down. Sure. And we all got, well, I still do it. I cried. Yeah. The flag went up. I cried. I wasn't mistreated at all, but I was free now. Yeah. But he came in tall, had on with him. He had three, two or three stars, but he had enough of them. Mm-hmm. He had a pair of guns in his wrist. Yep. Walked around, 
and I tell people this, and I'm lying, so so <laughs> make sure that everybody knows. I was walking beside him, and I tried to kiss him. He wouldn't let me. <laughs> I'm lying. I'm lying. Like, <laughs> but, I was but you wanted to, right? Yeah, I did, oh, and I was walking this close to him. Wow. I was running, and he was striding. You know, he was a tall man, mm. and uh, he went and inspected the camp, and he finished up and said, man, man, you've done a good job here. He had a high-pitched voice, mm. but, Lord, he was wonderful. Oh, well, he so was we your were salvation, right? That was, that was my release from prison yeah. camp. Wow. All right, so they shipped you back. I want to know, did you ever fly the B-17 again? No, not the 17, no. No, okay. No, I flew a little bit. After that, I flew uh, AT-10s. Well, you made a career in the, uh, what yeah. became the Air okay. Force, right? I got out of oh. prison camp, uh-huh. got married, went to and got on active duty. I flew a little bit. Uh, but I was putting on a desk job, which I hated. I did like I really remember, like any I was, pilot. remember I was unlearned, really all I knew was flying airplanes. Uh-huh. I didn't like my desk job. My wife got pregnant, so we decided we'd get out and, and go back home to Louisville, Kentucky. All right. Which we did. And then I got retired got dismissed from the and I was but a state in reserves. And rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Yes, exactly right. All right. They'll, they'll go all a little bit of it, yeah. Okay. So we got back, and we had they had three children, and I started college. And I tell you, I had to work and go to college. It was rough. <laughs> Didn't have any yeah. money. Well, and my pay, is, I got, rose to captain then, uh-huh. and my pay was uh, 400 a month. No flying pay you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. See, I think flying pay was 50% more. So as a major, it was a captain there until got recalled. I wasn't in a flying state, nor would they put me back on flying pay, flying work, okay, on flight status. And so I finished there, and then applied for ROTC, and I got a job teaching at the University of Kentucky. Oh, so you were a professor? Yes, assistant professor of, of air science. All right. Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in the presence of... Angels son or of, of kings. Okay. Hey, have you heard of Rupp? Rupp. Rupp, R-U-P-P. Mm, in what context? He, and uh, he was the basketball coach for University of Kentucky. Okay. No, I don't believe I have. Mean as a snake. <laughs> but Kentucky was the national champion for three or four years. Okay. And back in, this was in 46, 48, something like okay. that. A couple of years after Rupp, the war. Rupp and who was the football player who went to who was from from uh, Alabama? He was so mean. I look back, and I think the world of football has ruined the colleges. In in this respect, I has has damaged the colleges mm-hmm. because those guys in the basketball first as the in the ROTC we had rule was on. That you were, this was when the draft was in, in place, but you were exempt from the draft if you were in college. Uh-huh. Rupp and this other coach got the best man they got in that came in, and they went to those to football or basketball, and therefore got scholarships. But they had to be in the military, so they, all of them they were in ROTC. Okay, some army, some air force. Sure. Did you ever find out who the pilot was? Who shot you down? Never did, no. No information no. about that? And what happened with you and your crew after your entrapment? Actually, I don't want to call it entrapment. What would I call it? Imprisonment. Uh, yeah. 
Have you kept in touch? Did you keep in touch through later life? To a degree, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, with the co-pilot and navigator, very close contact, Mm -hmm. because the navigator was from Nashville, and the co-pilot was from New York, and so we did get together and communicate. The co-pilot was a musician as well, and one of the guys in our room with us was a hot, red, hot guitar player. (laughs) And so the two of them played music in the POW camp Uh for everybody else. We had an orchestra, a 14-piece orchestra, and it was good. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So we did keep in touch with the navigator. Hey, we sort of lost with him, lost touch, and he died. He died early. Okay. Uh, We all smoked. He had been enlisted in the Army, and he went to cook and baker school. Hmm. So when he came in to our, to our group, he became the, the, the chef of our room. He, he took it, he said, I'll do it under one condition, or this condition, I want every bit, every morsel of food that comes in this room. Every morsel. So he can turn it into something? No, yeah, so he could turn it in. And also he had one assistant who was a navigator on a, and later on in B-52s or something. But anyway, he had a navigator with him. He was a young kid, and he was his assistant. The rest of us did all the work in the kitchen, but he's the one who cooked. Okay. And he, oh, shoot. It made it less well painful? <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had D-bars with the candy thing I right. told you about. Yep. And he would take a D-bar and shave it up and make a cake with the, the ground-up bread Mm-hmm. And the little tiny bit of sugar we had, mm-hmm. and make a cake. We had a cake every day. <laughs> but you did okay. Morale, yeah. shoot, yeah. sky high. But even okay. But Gene, the the co-pilot, and then we had another fellow musician in the room. We were together quite a bit afterwards. They they did a bit of music and they played, and we would go and listen to them play guitar, and mm-hmm. and uh, both of them played guitars. Okay. Gene was more of a classical, and Chuck was a red-hot man. Okay. Red-hot. Anyway, so, go ahead. So, no, well, so you kept in touch uh, after... Yeah, and, uh, with, with all the other roommates. We sure. kept in touch with roommates, and they finally died off here and there, and, yeah. and my crew died off. Well, last my crew died about a year ago, something like that. Okay. I'm the old fart, old, old guy. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, in the years since, gone back to Germany or Poland? No, I've not gone back to Poland. We have my wife and I went to Berlin, saw the wall. Okay. And we're very much impressed with that. Germany is still a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. The Danube River is the sanitation source for Europe. So everything flows into the Danube and then out into wherever it goes? And we went to um, a place down there in southern Germany. Southern, in southern, anyway, near Salzburg, and saw the Danube, and I went on a bridge going over the Danube, brown, brown, because of the cesspool thing. Mm. They had blocked off a part of the river, we'll say 100 yards wide and 500 yards long on, on the bank on the mm. from the edge of the water, and blocked that off and had purified the water and we could sit up there on the bridge looking down. So all the brown river with that blue hmm. spot that they had done that too. Okay. That's an aside, but it still, uh, to me, speaks volume about what they went 
because yeah. the Danube was the sewer for Europe. So when you went back, did you feel any sort of animosity for the war? No, not at all. I'm sorry to digress so much. On our march, we marched all the night, all night long the first night, mm-hmm. and we had not had any sleep for 12 hours, so we were dead tired. Mm-hmm. So we had rest stops periodically, and we could just lie on the snow and sleep. That's all we did. One night, and that, that night, about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, this is so important to me. A lady came out of her house. Now, we were the prisoners, and she was free. She came out of the house with a pitcher of hot water and poured hot water into our cups, gave us some hot water. It was like nectar. Now, I have never forgotten that. This was a German lady, mm-hmm. and we were POWs. We had another instance on the same walk, my march, and went to a house. We were allowed to sort of branch out and go and do too far, you know. Mm-hmm. And went to the house and, and knocked the door and, and asked her for some food. And she gave me some soup, which was potatoes and water, and there was not much else. But she had a big stove in a corner like they had in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I turned the radio on, and BBC came on, ah. and she said, Hold it down. So I was reading, listening to BBC on her radio, and she was uh, letting me do it. <laughs> now I'm saying that because that reflects the German people. Right. That they really treated us beautifully. Those in that sense, the guards were de- very decent to us. We did not have a hard time. They had their job they had to do, and mocked them. Well, we and we enjoyed them. Well, and they were doing their duty, arguably. Yeah. Hogan's Heroes' physical camp was modeled for our camp. Okay. So no kidding. Same, the same, almost identical right. to it. Well, speaking of Hollywood, I assume you have seen or at least heard of the movie Memphis Belle? Oh, yes. But yes. Several years out. I wondered if you could comment on having watched that and having lived that, where the movie was right, maybe where it was wrong. I mean, because that's what most people will build their interpretations of both the air war in the early parts of the war, as well as the B-17. Okay. Now, the 17, yes, I went in it. And, of course, when I get into the 17 now, the only place I want to go is up in the cockpit. I don't think care of the rest of the airplane. <laughs> I love you in the cockpit, right. and of course, they can't get up there anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, so I got refurbished in, in Memphis. When I was, and it was in Memphis at the time. The actual Memphis Bell. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the Memphis Bell, yeah. Mm-hmm. I read the book, Memphis Bell, and... Uh, Trying to answer your question as best I can, that last mission Memphis Bell was on in the book mm-hmm. was incorporated just about all the things that happened to me in my 10 missions. We had somebody get killed. They had somebody badly wounded. We had the Bombay doors open. I remember looking down the Bombays and seeing the, nothing down there. And the bombardier got killed. Uh, we had good camaraderie among the members up there. Mm-hmm. And I was a boss, and I didn't have to worry a bit about being boss. It was, hey, we're here, and we do the job. All right. But I'm saying in the last, the last day was used in incorporating things that happened. They have it holes. We had a hole in the airplane every mission we were on. Right. I'm trying to get to get to describe what you're referring to. Um, on one mission... We were, you know, the Zyder Z in Holland at that point was an 
a miniature, oh, it was an ocean, uh, a big lake, saltwater mm. lake. Mm. But it had, so in the, in the, the uh, Dutch people are the world's best in hydraulic engineering. But there's a, a lake there, the Zyder Zee, and uh, we would let down on the way home going over that lake because we were out of the bridge of the people of the Germans. Mm-hmm. And we let down this one day, six of us. They shot one round of 88 millimeter guns at us from the, that lake. They had boats stationed out there. Because they knew you were flying knocked, over it? Yep. They knocked two of the airplanes down. Huh. They knocked a hole in my rear fuselage that you could crawl through. Oof. They uh, cut the, uh, the electrical system. It had to fly manually, which was all right. We had a hole in the airplane every mission we were on. Hmm. But you never flew the B-17 again? Never, never handled it, huh. no. Uh-uh, never handled it. No kidding. Because they were just not around. Right. And uh, the ones who had it were old pilots, and they didn't want to get young swippers snapper, <laughs> you know. Right. But never flew it. I've flown in them a couple of times. And flying out in the back is not fun. It's not even fun. Right. Unless you can drive it. No, I agree. Well, we're both pilots, so yeah, okay. we're, of course, going to feel that <laughs> okay. way. Well, Mr. Hicks, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed your stories and learning a little bit about the war and the B-17. Thank you so much. We on this show have a tradition of talking about our nicknames or call signs. Now, you said you had a crewman whose name was Useless. Did you have a nickname or a, what we would call a call sign these days? Yep. Okay. Do you care to share what it was and how it came about? I have... I wear. I have a third, size thirteen shoe. <laughs> when we were training at Dalhart in at Dalhart, Texas, uh-huh. in the winter time, I got two stories to tell you there. First of all, in the winter time, and on Christmas Day of '43, I had to fly something down to uh, San Antonio. Mm-hmm. We flew from Dalhart. The airplane, uh, the seventeen, has a seventeen foot tail. The runways were up to my waist. The run- what, in the snow? The snow. Okay. The runways being so high, we're at Labrador. That's when we were 17 feet high. Okay. okay. Yeah. We took off that day and flew all day long doing practice work and, and mm. uh, plane landing and so forth down to San Antonio, picked up something. I got out in this blizzard weather, the cold weather, and got down there and took my jacket off, all in the same state, the same day. The weather were that different. Uh, to me, it's more important that it happened. Mm-hmm. But while at Dalhart, I had to get some overshoes to get out in the snow. They didn't have any of my size, so they gave me size 14 shoes, overshoes. All right. And my navigator promptly notified me that my name was Shuffle. So I would shuffle around all the time. So I was called Shuffle the whole time. You were time. Shuffle, all right, because of shoes. Oh, that's crazy. All right. Well, Mr. Hicks, this has been really enjoyable. You are a treasure trove of information. And but you're, don't forget I lie a lot. Well, we like to say never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> and if my math is correct, let's see, you said 1921, and then you said February. So you've turned 98 years young this year, is that 98 right? and a half. Well, God bless you, sir. I'm blessed. You are indeed. Shoot, I tell you what, and you know the good thing, I do appreciate it. I do appreciate all the things that the Lord's done for me to help, and or keep me out of trouble and things that I've done wrong is, that I should have been punished for. You know these kinds of things. Yeah. But really, I mean it. I was just overwhelmed with that. 
Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for your time. Now, you are retired? As- I did, yes. Hey, hey, how many hours did you have in... In, uh- in military aircraft, a little over 3,800. Gee, my And you're flying fighters. Some of those were under an hour at a time, yes. Good night. <laughs> okay. I always wanted to make, make a carrier landing. I always felt like it, I didn't have any qualms about the idea. But when you hit the lane, you, you, you stop, don't you? It's a controlled crash. <laughs> yeah, I've heard this so many times. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you know, my, my fear, and okay, I'll stop here. My fear was uh, I didn't want to go in the Navy, although I love the Navy and the, the, what I saw. But, and of course, the uniform was outstanding, all these uh-huh. kinds of things. Thank you. I was thinking... I, here I am. I'm flying. I'm I was in my, I was before he even got in the army. Mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm, I'm I'm flying an airplane. I'm in a dogfight over the water. And you're imagining I'm this. Try, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to get home to the carrier, uh-huh. but no radio and no lights on. Uh-huh. And I decided really that made me. I ain't going to the navy <laughs> <laughs> because of that. So those facts right there. There you go. And yeah. so you've been there and done that too, haven't you? Uh, well, not with the no radio and no lights, but we our systems these days are pretty reliable. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks very much. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and our guests and do not represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.